This is Christopher Mad Dog Russo's Digging Up the Past, an historical podcast taking a deep dive into the 10 greatest Major League Baseball teams to never win the World Series. Welcome, folks. Digging Up the Past, Christopher Russo. We give you the third installment of our podcast series. Subject matter of this one, the 10 greatest baseball teams that never won it. And the 10 teams the committee chose, the one caveat is at the core of the team, uh, doesn't win a World Series. And for example, that's all the way back to 1906 and the Cubs. What a year. 116 and 36. That's the greatest regular season ever. But they lost the World Series to the crosstown rival White Sox. Not going to discuss the 06 Cubs, however, because they won the World Series in 07 and 08. Focus of this episode is the 78 Red Sox, a team very interesting because of all the clubs we've discussed. This season plays out like a Hollywood script. The reason why the 78 Red Sox are so compelling to me is because their story takes little elements of all the teams that were showcasing this season on the podcast and rolls it up into one brutal defeat. A roller coaster of a regular season includes an epic collapse, a wonderful, inspiring comeback, late season recovery, and then heartbreak and perhaps, in my eyes, the greatest baseball game ever played. The 77 Red Sox were a very good team, too. They challenged the Yankees all season long. That was the first year the Yankees had Reggie, Reggie Jackson, and Boston even had a lead that summer late in the division, but ultimately fell short to the Yanks, who went on to beat the Dodgers and won a World Series. The following spring, Boston retooled their roster in hopes of dethroning New York and bringing home their long-sought-after championship. Well, last year I said that the Yankees were the team to beat, and if we played excellent baseball, we'd have a chance. Uh, I think it was an exciting season. Uh, they had a little too much for us. Uh, this year, I'm very optimistic. I think that by adding Torres, Drago, and Bergmeier, along with Remy, that we now have a chance to beat the Yankees, and I'm much more optimistic that we can beat them than I was last year, and we only lost by two games. That was Red Sox future Hall of Famer an outfielder, one of the leaders of the club, Carl Yaskrimski. A couple of key additions that Yaz mentioned. Jerry Remy came over from the Angels to play second base, replacing Danny Doyle. Mike Torres had just won a World Series with the Yankees the previous year. He joins uh, the bitter rival Red Sox in 1978. Lou Pinella, who played for the Yankees from 74 to 84, very impressed by Boston's roster. The Red Sox, my God, they had power at every position. I mean... Fist behind home plate. They had Scott at first base. Remy, a good contact hitter at second base. Shortstop Burleson, he could hit. Uh, Butch Hobson at third. And then the outfield. <laughs> they had Yastrzemski. They had Jim Rice. They had Fred Lynn. Dewey Evans. I mean, it, it, it's unbelievable. This Red Sox team was loaded. Four would end up in the Hall of Fame. Fisk, Rice, Yaz, and pitcher Dennis Eckersley. But not only that. Great All-Stars, Fred Lynn on the team, Dwight Evans in right field, Louis Tiant, George Scott, Rick Burleson. Not easy outs in this lineup, and one of the best pitching staffs in the American League. So Boston in 78 primed to go out there again, beat the Yanks, and then see what happens in the postseason. Season gets underway, Boston's on fire. They drop their first two, but they win 9 of 10. So right off the bat, they're flying in the American League East. You always hear players in cities like Boston and New York talk about the need to block out the noise from the media. Good starts can help do that. That was not the approach, however, of blocking out noise of then-Red Sox manager Don Zimmer as outfielder Fred Lynn explains. The press. Uh, was relentless, you know, because we hadn't won. And so every game was like, meant everything. Uh, oh, no, they lost. You know, oh, Jesus, it's, it's April. Uh, so, you know, that was the intensity of which we played. And Zim couldn't get away from the, the media. You know, he uh, listened to all the talk shows and he read everything and, you know, it just wore him down. <laughs> if he had been a little bit more carefree about it, and, and probably we would have been better off Critics are silent as the Red Sox got off uh, to a pretty good start. Here's Freddie. The 78 team was, you know, we were, we were itching to get back after 77, to be honest with you. And we came out of the gates pretty good. And the Yankees, for whatever reason, they were stumbling. Um, this was, the Yankee team was really, really good. I think they won 100 games in 77. So we were looking at them and said, wow, what's going on over there? 
But, you know, we blew, blew everybody away in the first half. Uh, we were healthy. That was the key. By Memorial Day weekend, the Red Sox kicked it in a high gear. They turned a one-game divisional lead into double digits by the time they reached the All-Star break. Red Sox were rolling in the Yankees. How about that? The Yankees, with Billy Martin and all the mess in New York with Mr. Jackson and Mr. Steinbrenner, struggling fourth place and 14 games back. They weren't even in our rearview mirror. Uh, they were third or fourth. Milwaukee was a good team, and they won 93 games that year. So uh, I think four teams in the division went over 90 games, and the Orioles were good too. So there were a lot of other te- there were other teams that we were more concerned about than the Yankees because they were playing so poorly. It wasn't until the Yankees got to second place, and then we said, okay, you know, they are a factor. But when they're midseason, they weren't. Fred Lynn mentioning that the Yankees were not even on the radar is the type of statement that would infuriate George Steinbrenner. He don't like that. Not even in a discussion as we head to the summer. Steinbrenner addicted to winning. He won in 77. That wasn't enough. Let's win again. His lack of patience and impulsiveness to make changes to improve his squad. That's George's way. It's funny how Steinbrenner is the exact opposite. The current Yankee owner, the current Steinbrenner, not George. He was uh, pretty feisty. They were the reigning World Series champ, but George felt the season was slipping away. So you know what George is going to do? He's going to fire another manager, this time Yankee skipper Billy Martin. Now, for some context, Billy would be fired and rehired to be the Yankee skipper nearly a half a dozen times throughout the next decade. But this is the first time he feels the axe under Steinbrenner. Lots of issues. He didn't like Reggie Jackson. Remember the famous line uh, at the airport to Maury Chass in the New York Times? One's a born liar, one's a convicted liar. Born liar is Reggie, convicted liar is Steinbrenner. Remember, George got in trouble uh, back in the early 70s and got suspended from baseball. Yankees had begun to play a little better when Billy uttered those comments, but obviously not enough to soothe George. He's not going to put up with that. So off Billy goes. To replace him, the Yankees turn to Hall of Famer pitcher Bob Lemon of the Indians. Personality, nice and soft, a different kind of intensity than Billy. He's going to you know, put the lineup out and let the ball club play. Led the quick results. It's exactly what the Yankees needed. Settle down and let the talent take over. Bob was perfect. They picked up a lot of victories. Lemon was the perfect antidote for uh, Billy Morton. And I got a big break on an intangible. There was a newspaper strike in New York. So in other words, all the dailies could not sit there and write about the Yankee issues in the clubhouse. That's a big factor for New York, as baseball historian Tom Verducci explains. <laughs> well, the Yankees will tell you it was the newspapers on strike <laughs> that helped them. Right. They took all the pressure off. Uh, I do think there's something to that, by, by the way. Somebody today, a kid today, might not realize how much influence newspapers had, especially in New York. Um, so the drumbeat and the questioning and every loss was, you know, an inquisition in New York. Uh, with that, that all went away and it did loosen up what had been a very tense team anyway because of the personality. So that helped. Today, it's all about the social media outlet and the criticism. But in the late 70s, before the Internet, the local newspapers was the main source of information, especially in a city like New York. Boston, they wielded all the power. And in the summer of 78, the union responsible for operating the printing presses for the Times, the Daily News, and the Post went on strike. It shut down the newspapers and reduced a lot of media exposure and media attention. And that really helped the Yankees. I know it's weird to think this way, but with the Yankees, with Munson and Nettles and Jackson and Steinbrenner, they needed to calm down. And the strike there really helped them a little bit. By mid-August, the Yankees had moved into second place. And the Red Sox, of course, are starting to pay attention. Boston stole a nice lead. But New York reduced their advantage to just seven games. Fred Lynn felt that Don Zimmer's approach to that first half of the season was starting to impact them in half number two. He wouldn't bring in, take anybody out uh, for fear that we, somebody might come from behind and beat us in a game that we were ahead. And so the regulars, the starters... And the same guys started every day, pretty much, uh, first half of the season. Uh, they got no rest. And you just can't do that. You have 25 guys on a roster for a reason. And those guys need to get game time experience. So when they're uh, put in, uh, in the game, you know, they've got some experience behind them. And what happened was when Rooster went down, Frank Duffy hadn't played, I don't think, maybe an inning or two in the first half. And he, I think he hurt his ankle. He was out for like three weeks. Well, Frank Duffy is a good player, but you got to play these guys. 
And so you start throwing these guys into the heat of the battle, and they're scuffling. It's like spring training for them. And that's kind of what happened to us uh, in uh, later July and August. Um, guys that hadn't played all of a sudden are in there, and it was tough for them. The rooster that Lynn is referring to is Red Sox shortstop Rick Burleson. All right, New York's winning ways continued in that final month of 1978, and with Boston starting to struggle, the pressure was mounting heading into a big showdown at Fenway. You have to go back to that Boston Massacre series, right, Chris? I mean, they got the Yankees in their own yard in, in September with a chance to really put it away. They're up four games. MLB Network's baseball historian, Tom Verducci. Yankees at home. The, the Red Sox have this great lineup, and they just get blown out four straight. They get outscored 42 to 9 in four games. Now, all of a sudden, the, the, the AL is tied. The AL East is tied. You know, if they just even. You know, split the series. They, they're up four in the middle of September. If they you know, win the series, they're up five or six. So that, to me, tells me that, yeah, they blew it because they couldn't manage to be even competitive in those four games against the Yankees. Now, a big decision by Zimmer with the rotation in August played a crucial role in the fourth and final game of that early September massacre at Fenway. He hated Bill Spaceman Lee. He was yanked from the Red Sox rotation. He had 10 wins and a good ERA in the mid-threes. Now, Lee was in the middle of a losing streak, didn't win in seven consecutive starts, but most people knew the real reason. Lee and Zimmer, two opposites, just did not get along. Zimmer is stubborn. Lee doesn't get the ball. Bobby Sproul does in his just second career start. Here's Lynn. When Bill Lee got in Don Zimmer's doghouse, I mean, that was a, a, a killer for us because Bill Lee pitched well against the Yankees. I don't care if you liked him or not. I mean, he pitched well against those guys. And to put a guy like Bobby Sproul, who had no experience whatsoever, into that kind of series, that kind of spotlight, I mean, it just wasn't fair to him. I mean, he had no chance of beating those guys. Uh, they're an experienced team, and they worked them uh, over pretty good. But uh, if, if Sim uh, pitches Bill Lee like the last third of the season a little bit, uh, that's, you know, that's a mean, we just needed one more game. And then we beat the Yankees. So you look back on things, and as they're happening, you, you don't really, you can't comprehend exactly what's going on. But when you look back, you say, geez, some, you pitch Bill Lee. I know you don't like him, but oh my gosh, put him in there. We're going to win one more game, and then we don't have that playoff game. Lynn and the Red Sox, they were down, but not out of it. You know, this is what you really got to test the character of a ball club. They had the four Hall of Famers. They had that wonderful first half. They fell behind by three and a half games, but they got going a little bit. Give them credit. Again, here's Lynn. I mean, every game uh, after the Yankees swept us, okay, we said, all right, that's it. You know, (laughs) every game is like the seventh game of the World Series, and that's how we played. I mean, the intensity in every inning of all those games was off the charts, and every guy was grinding, and, um, and we just battled and battled and battled, and then we, we showed our true mettle, I thought, at that particular time, when we could have just put our tail between our legs and said, ah, they caught us and they beat us and blah, 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 but we didn't. So after the sweep, the Red Sox played a little better. Yankees out of town, they can take a big sigh of relief. They won four of six. And on September 23rd, while they defeated the Blue Jays, the Yankees dropped their ball game to the Indians, leaving the Yankees leading the division at just one game. Freddie. Yeah, we watched. Are you kidding with those? We were playing at home, and, you know, there wasn't an electronic scoreboard. They would just hang numbers up on our scoreboard, and we'd watch them. And we'd see a zero go up for the Yankees. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, we watched that scoreboard. Absolutely. Final week, the two bitter rivals could not get separation from each other in the standings. The drama is all over the place in the Northeast. I mean, listen, it's the Yankees and the Red Sox. 1978, the Yankees had fired a manager, a lot of Hall of Famers. They were close the year before. Red Sox World Series 75, Yankees World Series 76. There was a lot going on. Uh, When you get these two teams in a big pennant race, think 49 Nothing is better. So we go to that last day of the regular season. The Yankees still lead by a game. So the Red Sox are at home. Yankees are playing the Indians. Both games start at 2 o'clock. Tiot's pitching for the Red Sox, a two-hit shutout. The Red Sox win easy. 
And now they got to hope the Yankees stumble, and that's exactly what happened. Now, he had a great second half, but he stumbled in his last game. That's Catfish Hunter. He, of course, the former A Hall of Famer, went to the Yankees there in 75. He got outpitched by Indian lefty Rick Waits as the Tribe at the stadium beat the Yankees. They buried him in the game. I think it was 9-2. to two. Left the Yankees and the Red Sox tied at the end of the regular season with 99 wins. Here's Viducci. A lot of times when you're holding the lead, you get someone's chasing you down. They catch you late. It's hard, man, to bounce back. It's just momentum at that point seems to have a life of its own. So for the Red Sox to go eight and zero in their last eight to force a 163, I mean that's historic. I know we all focus on you know the lead they gave up and what was it 13 and a half at one point. But to be two out with eight to play and go eight and no, that was pretty darn impressive. So for the first time since divisional play started in 1969, baseball plays a tie-breaking game 163. And the game, of course, is at Fenway. And to me, Christopher Russo, based on the regular season, the rivalry, the up-and-downness, and everything else, I think it was a great symbol for the whole year. And I think because of that, it's the best game I've ever seen. There's plenty more ways to listen to Mad Dog Sports Radio than turning to Channel 82. Miss any of the shows live? They are all available on the SiriusXM app. Great video content from Morning Men, Adam Shine, and the doggy himself. Have a laugh with Bab Chick from the basement. Plus podcasts like Digging Up the Past and the Adam Shine Podcast. And make sure to check out the Mad Dog interviews and highlights tabs for more great content. It's all available on the SiriusXM app, free for most subscribers. So easy to use, even a dog can do it. Red Sox won the coin flip. That's why the game is at Fenway to get the home field advantage. So the Yankees, uh, you know, after they lost to Waits in the Tribe, had to fly up to Boston. It was Yam Kippur. It was a mid-afternoon start in Fenway in a beautiful fall day. Torres would take the mound. How weird is that? He pitched the Yankees the before. The Red Sox, the Yankees and Lemon, they're going to move Ron Guidry, who was wonderful that year. He won 25 games. They're going to move him up a day and have him pitch on three days rest. Tricky spot for Gidry. All right, after a scoreless first inning, Yankees-Red Sox, this is an ABC game. It's on local television as well. Don Drysdale, Keith Jackson, the legendary Yaskrimski, leads off the bottom of the second against Gidry. Ron Gidry on the mound for the Yankees. That's gone. It's a home run if it stays fair. And a home run for Yaskrimski. The Red Sox lead one and nothing. One nothing lead in the sixth inning when the Red Sox did a little more damage. Rick Burleson leads off with a double. Two batters later, Jim Rice brings him home. Rice, of course, that year won the MVP. So it's Boston two, Yankees nothing. Now Boston could have blown open this game when Fred Lynn stepped to the plate. We got guys on first and second, two out. And I hit a rocket. I hooked one into the right field corner. Well, for some inexplicable reason, Pinella's playing me to pull. Right field, Pinella's after it, and he's got it. What a catch by Pinella. Made a basket catch going back toward the corner. He should be moving over towards right center, and he ran and caught it, snow-coned it in the corner. Well, that cost us two runs, and that would have put us up 4 nothing. probably not Gidry out of the game, and we got into their middle relief. That game is over. Pinella, of course, successful career. He's a very good player and a good big league manager. And as our pal Tom Verducci explains, his managerial instincts took over in that moment. Freddie Lynn thought for sure he had at least two, probably three. He could not believe that, that Lou Pinella caught the baseball. And after the game, he actually had asked Pinella, probably quite a while after the game, you know, what the heck were you doing there? I thought for sure that was a hit. No way you catch that. He said, well, you know what? I saw that Gidry... I think Gidry was pitching on short rest. He said, I I saw that Gator wasn't really sharp, didn't have his best fastball, and I thought there was a better chance you could pull him than you would normally. So I just moved over. And I always think about that, Chris, as a guy paying attention to the game. There was no coach in the dugout telling Lou Pinella to move closer to the line against Fred Lynn, against the left-handed pitcher. Pinella is just going by what he sees in baseball intellect, and there he is. And you can say it was luck. You can say it was happenstance. But I credit Lou Pinella for paying attention and picking something up in what he saw in Rod Gidry. All right, Pinella's heady play holds that Red Sox lead to just 2-0 through 6. Sort of like the regular season. Red Sox start the year off in good shape. 
Two nothings, not a 14 game lead, but you get the idea. Three innings to go at her at home, and I got a two run lead. All right, so Mike Torres enters the top of the seventh. He's pitched very well. The Yankees have had just two hits, so away we go. But in the seventh, trouble. Shambles, Chris Shambles, and Roy White reach base safely, and with two on and two out, Red Sox manager Don Zimmer decides to keep Torres in the game. Can't blame him. It's the right move to face the Yankees' ninth man in the lineup, that soft-hitting shortstop Bucky Dent. Now, should have been an easy out for Torres. Dent was only hitting 220 against righties. Not a big hitter. Should have been a moment. Get the out. Get to the eighth inning. And away we go. Put a little stop to this Yankee rally. Should have been a lot of things. Here you go. Deep to left. Yastrzemski will not get it. It's a home run. A three-run home run for Bucky Dent. The Yankees now lead it by a score of three to two. Bucky Dent has just hit his fifth home run of the year into the screen. And look at that Yankee bench, led by Bob Lemon. The man who would become infamously known in Boston as Bucky Dent Lifted the ball, of course, over the green monster, gave the Yankees the lead. Thurman Munson adds an RBI double two batters later, and the Bombers are up on the Red Sox 4-2. to two. Disbelief, Red Sox fans, Fenway, it's quiet, nothing going on, bottom of the seventh. This is a big run here in the top of the eighth. Red Sox go to Bob Stanley, he's their best relief pitcher. Can't blame Zimmer for bringing him in the game. Keep that deficit at 4-2, but Mr. October comes to the plate, Reggie Jackson. Oh, that's a high drive to center. Let's see. That ball is gone. It's out of here. The Yankees lead it five to two. Jackson, a towering drive straight away center field. Holy cow, did he hit that? Nine mile. Look at that Yankee bench. That was a big home run by Reggie out the left center. Huge home run. It's typical Jackson. He, you know, he does these kinds of things all the time. It's a big blow. And all of a sudden now it's 5-2 Yankees in the late innings. Obviously a comeback now gets to be a little nerve wracking for Boston. Their second baseman, Jerry Remy, explains. The one that beat us was the Reggie home run. And that made it 5-2. to two. And that made it a whole different ball game, you know, at that point when he hit that home run to straightaway center field. That's the one that bothered me more than the Bucky Den home run because we still had plenty of outs left to come back and score some runs. And we also knew that on that particular day, Gid- Gidry was not at his best, so we had a shot. Quite a roller coaster for the Red Sox. All year long in the last month this season, and boy, what a roller coaster in this game. They scored the first two runs, then they give up five unanswered, and I got to try to bounce back in their ballpark against their rival who always beats them historically in big spots. A lot of teams, maybe they collapse. The Red Sox don't show your medal, as I mentioned before, and they bounce back. And this is with Goose Gossage, a Hall of Famer reliever, on the mound for the Yankees. Boston, though, went to work. Remy, a double leading off the bottom of the eighth. Jim Rice flies out to right, but the next batter, Yaskrimski, knocks Remy home with an RBI single, 5-3. Carlton Fisk follows Jazz with a base hit, runners at first and second for Fred Lynn. Hits the left field, base hit. Here comes Yaskrimski, around third, he will score. It is Gossage has got a bear down here in the eighth inning. Got two on, 5-4, but Chopson's retired. And he strikes out George Scott in a high fastball. So the Yankees get to the ninth of the lead. They don't do anything, though, in the top of the ninth. They don't add on. So a chance for a Hollywood-type finish with the Red Sox at home, 5-4, bottom of the ninth. Gossage is not going anywhere. He's their closer, Sparky Lyle the year before. Now it's Gossage's time. And he starts the inning in good shape. Dwight Evans on a flyout, one away. But Rick Burleson works out a walk, and that brings up Remy. Vanilla can't see the ball. And they hold the runner at second base. Luke could not see the ball. Fortunately, Foreman's hit right at him. And he got it on the first stop. I knew when I made contact that it was going to drop in. I didn't know at the time that he, he was going to lose it in the sun. And, of course, he just sticks out his glove, and, and the ball goes in in his glove and you know we had the whole runners at first and second and I think that was the right thing to do you know they could quickly get criticized for not for also not going to third base but 
I think it was it was it was, it was too risky a move to send him to third base because Lou got the ball back in quickly. Yes, he and, did. And you know, so he, he got it in very quickly. So you couldn't take that chance. You know, there was a, it was a weird moment. You know, and when I got on first base after Lou made that play, I didn't think about it at the time. But at night, when I got home, I thought about it. I said, "Man, if that ball gets by him." I got an inside-the-park home run, and we win. They'll build a statue outside for me, you know. <laughs> Jerry's not going to score. Uh, you know, you might have a, he might be at third base, but he's not going to score if that ball does get by Pinella. Burleson would have, though, and then you'd have the winning run at third base, score tied with less than two outs. So that's how big that play was by Lou. But somehow, typical Pinella in this particular game, uh, the ball found its way into Lou's glove and keeps the runners at first and second. Very, very important. Pinella's defense saves the Yanks. Jim Rice is up next. He flies out the deep right. You know, Rice had some big at-bats late in this game. Deep enough for a sack fly, but nobody at third base. He does move Burles in the third, but that doesn't help with two outs. So that's how this was a really, really big play by Pinella, keeping Burles at second base. Uh, that's very important. With Rice and Yaz coming up, boy, if he gets to third base at the bare minimum, he got 5-5. Five, five. Bottom nine, maybe going into the extra innings. So, so the game comes down to the future Hall of Famer Gossage against the future Hall of Famer Yaskrimski. Tying runs 90 feet away. Yaz has already had a big game to date. He hit a homer off Gidry. got the base hit, too, to make it 5-3. Yaz has had a big day. Gossage is Gossage. So there is a lot of drama. Late afternoon, Fenway Park. First and third, two out, 5-4, game 163. That's why baseball is the best sport. You got to get 27 outs. Clock is not going to run out on you. 27 outs. Freddie Lynn remembers it well. I, I can still see the pitch. And, and you know, I, I, I've talked to Goose about this. And he just reared back as, and threw it as hard as he can, which is what Goose did most of the time anyway. And he just let it fly. And to Goose's credit, he says, I'm going to get beat with my best pitch was of gas. Everybody knew in the ballpark knew what was coming. Even Yaz knew what was coming. Popped up. That might be it. Meadows over at third base. He'll squeeze it and it's over. Yastrzemski fouls out the Yankee third baseman, Greg Meadows. He put a good swing on it. The ball was just up in the zone enough where Yaz got under it. I mean, it was a really good swing. It, I'm talking about a, a quarter of an inch. If Yaz gets on top of that ball, he might hit it out. So everybody knew what was going on. Everybody knew what was coming. And, you know, he, he just got under it and, and popped it up. But it was not just a little pop-up. It was a mile up there. So it was like, ugh. You know, it was just a big letdown on our side. You know, obviously, jubilation on the Yankees' side. And look at those Yankees. They have come here in Boston, and they have beaten the Red Sox again. Everybody's happy. The final score, the Yankees five, the Red Sox four, and the Yankees win the 1978 American League Eastern pennant. 163 games, the best rivalry in the sport. And the season comes down to two Hall of Famers and one at bat. Boy, oh boy. That's, to me, why it's the best game I've ever seen. Legendary broadcaster Bob Costas agrees. He thinks it's one of the best he's ever seen. That game, the one we're talking about, the Bucky Dent game, it had drama, it had strategy, it had so many moments, as a great baseball game does, where you say, look, of all these things that happened, these nine or ten things that happened, change any one of them. And the outcome is different. That, that's what gives you stuff to think about and to debate and talk about for years and years afterward. As a witness, we still are. Sometimes when you lose a 14-game lead, you're going to look at the skipper. And I, Don Zimmer wasn't Miller Huggins. I buy that. The Bobby Sproul, Bill Lee thing, I get that too. But as Tom Verducci says, you just can't blame Zimmer for what transpired in 1978. You know, any manager loses a lead like that, they're going to be second-guessed. You mentioned the 64 Phillies, you think about Mock. You know, 69 Cubs, you think about DeRosa. A lot of these cases of great teams that didn't win, you do think about the manager. And unless he gets some blame, I don't think there was any one, you know, uh, piece of the Jenga puzzle that he pulled that made the whole thing come crashing down. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he wasn't popular with a lot of his players, especially Bill Lee. Maybe that had something to do with it. But I, I don't know that I would say that it was on his shoulders alone. Former MOB commissioner Bud Selig really expected the ending of the season to turn out differently for both Zimmer and the Red Sox. I always felt sorry for Don Zimmer. That was a tough, tough year. I thought they'd win the playoff game and the shocking 
Bucky Dent three-run home run. I guess they still haven't gotten over that in Boston. They they have a term they use. You know what it means, and a blanking Bucky Dent. But it was it, it was it was it was really stunning. Cause Boston was really good. The '78 season. You know, listen, they've made up for it with their three championships since, so it's forgotten. But it's a brutal one for the Red Sox and their fans. And over the years, people have labeled the Red Sox as jokers for blowing that big lead and collapsing when the pressure was on in that big series in early September. I don't necessarily buy that, and nor does Bob Costas. A lot of times we just like an easy narrative, and we discount anything that doesn't feed into that narrative. So the narrative is the Red Sox always collapse. They always choke. That was the narrative until '04, and then you know they've won three uh, World Series in more recent years. But you're right about 78. It appeared that they were collapsing, and then they got off the deck, They needed Rick Waits, the left-hander from the Cleveland Indians, to beat the Yankees on the final Sunday for them to get back into a tie and force that one-game playoff. So they lose that playoff. But they came back in that playoff. They get the tying run on third base with Yaz at the plate, two outs in the ninth, and Gossage on the mound. If the Red Sox, either in 78 or in 86, truly choked and rolled over, the evidence doesn't exactly support that. In the end, it doesn't matter. Red Sox choked or if the Yankees just won it for a fan base that at the time had been waiting 60 years for a World Series championship. That season is a tough pill to swallow. When we return, we talk to Boston second baseman Remy to reflect on that historic season and the classic game 163. It's Mad Dog Unleashed with Christopher Mad Dog Russo. I don't have to know the passion. Be aggressive. Get something done. Hear the knowledge. The game, folks, is about two plays, and that's what it comes down to. Hear the personality. I'm going to start here in an angry mood. Get somebody on the radio! That has made him a sports talk legend. Does that make any sense to you? Guys, you're crazy. It's Mad Dog Unleashed with Christopher Russo. Weekdays, 3 p.m. Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Channel 82, or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Free for most subscribers. Jerry Remy is Boston through and through. He's a Boston area native. He played with the Red Sox for six years. And, of course, he's had a wonderful career as an analyst on Nesson since 1988. Here's our conversation with Jerry. You know, the year is phenomenal. The team is great. You probably knew it in spring training. The 77 team was very good, too. So you probably knew in Winter Haven you had a little something special going on with this 78 Red Sox team. Thoughts here as the season embarked there. What do you remember? Go ahead. Well, you know, I remember in spring training, you know, I knew that I, I came over from the Angels and I knew that, uh, you know, I was playing with the big boys now in the American League East with the Red Sox, and, you know, and the Yankees and all the good teams that are in the East. And, um, you know, it was, it was a, quite a different feeling for me being around, you know, guys that are all future Hall of Famers. And, uh, you know, for me, it was great because uh, this is where I was born and brought up and I wanted to be part of the Red Sox. I finally was. And we knew we had a good team and. You know, it got even better during spring training because at that particular time, they traded for Dennis Eckersley, who came over from Cleveland. So that kind of rounded out a rotation. And, you know, we felt, I mean, you don't have no idea. You have no idea at that point, you know, what, what you're going to do with the rest of the year. But we felt very good about the way things were going. And, um, you know, we knew it was going to be Yankees. It was going to be Red Sox, uh, you know, pretty much the whole way uh, that season. And, and uh, it was exciting. It was, you know, it was exciting. It was the most exciting season that I've ever been part of, you know, even though in a losing cause, you know, it was, uh, it was the best team that I ever played on. Uh, when you got, when did you get traded, Jerry, that winner, uh, give me a little rundown on a trade. Uh, I remember it. I didn't remember, uh, it was that year. Give me a little thoughts on a trade. Go ahead. Let me hear. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, the one, the one of the meetings were in Hawaii that year and I got traded for Don Aussie, uh, from the angels. When I was with the angels, I was playing second base and Bobby Gritchens, the shortstop. He heard his back. So they were going to move him back to second, which made me available. And I heard rumors about San Diego, and I wanted no part of that. I wanted to come back to the East Coast. I wanted to come home. And so they were able to work out a deal with the Red Sox, which was great. Uh, Don Ossie was involved, as I said. And I think Rick Miller somehow ended up with the Angels also in that deal. And um, it was it was a great homecoming for me. You know, it's what I always wanted to do. I've always been a Red Sox fan. I always, uh, you know, I grew up a Red Sox fan, a Yastrzemski fan, and all of a sudden I'm going to be a teammate with him. And it was uh, just an incredible feeling for me, you know, to be part of this. And I was nervous as hell when I got to, you know, got to spring training the first time. I mean, I know I'd spent three years in the big leagues, but this felt like I was 
really in the big leagues playing East Coast baseball. So it was, um, you know, it was totally, it was mind blowing for me to be part of this ball club and, and know that it was, you know, you're finally on a good ball club and, you know, the sky's the limit for it. Uh, and you knew the team the year before. Now, I don't know if you followed it that carefully, but that 77 Red Sox team lost a very close pennant race to the Yankees, which people kind of forget about because of the 78 team. So even a year before, they probably were really annoyed that they came up a, a game or two short, so there probably was a sense of urgency as 78 uh, developed. How about that, Jerry? Yeah, yeah exactly right. And, and you know, you know the, the bitterness that goes on between both ball clubs, you know, uh, especially in those days where you had people that really disliked each other, you know, Munson and Fisk and, you know, Pinella and Fisk and everybody hated Bill Lee. And it was, a, it was incredible. You know, it was a totally different feeling than I've ever experienced in baseball in my life. And yes, they came close in 77 and we all felt, you know, that we were the two best teams in baseball, you know, going into spring training and whoever won out between the Yankees and the Red Sox were probably going to go on to win a world series. That's how we felt. And, uh, you know, that's what happened. And unfortunately, it wasn't us. It was the Yankees that beat us in the playoff game, and they got a chance to go on and beat Kansas City and then beat the Dodgers and, and become the, the world champs, you know, which we, we kind of figured that whoever won that playoff game was going to be the team that would go on and win a World Series. And that's exactly what happened. So, you know, it was, it was the greatest game that I ever played in, even though it was in a losing fashion. It was the greatest game that I ever played in in my life, you know, because it was such a well-played game the playoff game, and it was so close, you know, a nail-biter, and it was on a perfect perfect fall afternoon here at Fenway Park. And, uh, you know, they just beat us by one run. So you, you think about playing the 162-game schedule, you've got a one-game one, a one game playoff, you get no wild card, and whoever wins that game, you know, goes on. Whoever loses, go home, and we go home by losing by one run after 162 games. It was incredible. Uh, best game I've ever seen, and I, I say that, Jerry, and I'll get to the season with you in a sec, but I say that because first off, it's first to 100. You both won 99 games. Number two, that game is very symbolic of the year. You had a great start to the season. You're winning 2 nothing after six innings in the playoff game. They right. come from behind, like they series in Fenway in September when they beat you four in a row. They come right. from behind. You're four behind, five to two. And like you did in September when you had that great winning streak to come from three and a half back to tie them, you had many chances in the eighth and ninth inning. So to me, the game is very, very symbolic of baseball with the Red Sox and Yankees from April through September. Now, you may not look at it that way as a player, but me as an analyst and as a sports fan does. Let me hear your take. Go ahead. Yeah, I I agree with you 100%. You You know, we had a first half like the Yankees had a second half. You know, we, they had some people banged up in the first half and didn't play up their capabilities. We, we, we had the huge lead going into, you know, around the all-star break. And then we, you know, they turned it around on us in the second half of the season where they went off and they got people healthy and they played great baseball like we did in the first half. And, you know, it all came down to that one game. I mean, it was hard to lose the kind of lead that we did. It was, it was like, you know, how is this happening? You know, we had no idea what was going on and, you know, why this was happening and, you know, what we could do to change it. And, we, you know, we just we just all decided, look, we got to keep playing, playing hard. And, you know, we had to, as you mentioned, you know, we had to win a lot of games right at the last week of the season. Every game, we couldn't lose a game. And then finally, Rick Waite beat the Yankees on that final Sunday to give us an opportunity to play the, the, the playoff game. So, you know, it was, I think it was a case where both teams underachieved at, at different times of the season. The Yankees in the first half, the Red Sox in the second half. But we had built up such a, you know, such a amount of wins that we were able to still uh, tread water and, you know, you know, put it together the last couple of weeks of the season to get to the playoff game. So, you know, I agree with you 100%. It was, it was two different seasons, really. You know, a winning season, a so-so season, and then a great playoff game. A uh, lot of people, let's talk about the managers quickly, Jerry. The Yankees had a mess. Billy gets fired. Here comes Bob Lemon. Did you guys pay attention to the nonsense with the Yankees? And then oh, you yeah. add Zim. You did pay attention. Let's do that first. You did pay attention to that. Go ahead. Let me hear. Oh yeah, we always we always did. I mean, we you know they, the Yankees Red Sox at the, in in those days, right? You know, you you couldn't get any better than that. So I think I think both teams paid attention to what the other teams were doing. You know, and I don't know if some guys will admit that, but I know I did, and I and I know I know a lot of guys in our clubhouse did. So we saw that all the time. And Billy getting fired was nothing new. 
you know, uh, you know, I love Billy Martin. You know, Billy Martin picked me for the All Star team in 1978, and uh, so you know, he was he was always been a favorite of mine. And I think I think he liked me because I kind of played the game a little bit the way that Billy did, and yep. uh, so I think that's why he liked me. You know, so uh, you know, even though I didn't get into the All Star game, it was it was great just to be there, and it was an honor for me to be picked by Billy Martin. So. You know, we we followed exactly what was going on, and we knew that they needed a calming influence there with Bob Lemon coming in, and um, you know they they had such great players. I mean, it didn't matter, it didn't really matter who managed that club, you know, either club really, because the players were so great on both clubs that you know they could go out and play by themselves. Excellent job, you're right. You were you were a Billy Martin kind of player. All right, how about Zimmer? Uh, he gets a lot of grief, you know, for the Spaceman Lee nonsense, Bobby Sproul, and the massacre in Fenway. You know, I, I he's a weird guy. Now he probably was good to you, uh, but I know you know in a lot in Boston uh, history he's not beloved. Give me your take on playing for him in '78. Go ahead. Well, I love playing for him because you knew you were going to play every day. You'd come in, write the lineup out, the same lineup was out there every day. You know, so and and I like playing for him. And we had we had a couple of differences, you know, along the way, but nothing major. Uh, you know, very minor on a on, on a baseball scale. Uh, but he didn't like pitches. He didn't like pitches, and he despised Bill Lee. You know, and because Bill Lee would call him like the gerbil and, you know, all kind of things like that, that really got under the skin of Don Zimmer, which you, you really can't let happen as a manager. Uh, but it did. And, and, you know, so that, you know, that Sproul incident you were talking about, you know, that that was like we were kind of looking at each other like, what's going on? We got we got Bill Lee. Why are we throwing him in a big game? And we're going with some kid named Bobby Sproul and it, it backfired on us, you know, so. That really hurt, and uh, but you know, Sim was stubborn in those kind of ways, you know, and he didn't like pitches. And I think it goes back to the days when he was a player and he got hit in the head so many times. Uh, I don't, I don't think he liked pitches at all, you know. So uh, it was, it was a very strange. But he despised Lee, you know. He and Lee didn't click at all. They were two totally different type of people, and um, you know, it, it, I, I think, I think his ego got in the way of that one start in the season, which could have been a very big start. You know, so, uh, yeah, they came in, they cleaned our clock for four games, and that's when we realized we were in trouble. You know, we, we uh, you know, we had to really regroup and, and get this thing back on the right track. And, and you know, that, that was the wake-up call, I think. The four-game sweep, it was, it was unbelievable. All right, uh, the last game of the year, um, uh, you watched the scoreboard, Waits, who always gave the Yankees trouble, buries them at Yankee Stadium. The lefty, I think it was eight to two. You watch that scoreboard. You're helpless because the Yankees got the one game lead. Go go through game one sixty two for me. Go ahead. Well, you know we were watching the scoreboard, but we had to take care of our business. You know we, what we did that week is we had some lambs on our schedule. Really, we had Detroit and Toronto on our schedule the final week, and we you know we knew we could beat these ball, beat up on these ball clubs, and it seemed like every game we played, you know we got out in front early. Uh, we, you know, we made them chase us and they were not going to catch us. And so it became somewhat of an easy week for us to win games. But we had to bank on the Yankees losing it and they weren't losing at all. You know, so it went right down to the final game. And, you know, uh, their game ended first, obviously. They put the the, uh, the score up on the scoreboard. That's the first time that we saw it. And, um, you know, we we're going, yeah, okay, we got this one, you know, so. And knowing we had the game the next day in our ballpark. So we, we finished off the final game pretty easily. Rick Waite helped us out tremendously by getting us a, a chance anyway. And, and so now it's time to go home and pack your suitcase. Now, they, you know, they tell you to pack your suitcase because if you win, you're going off to Kansas City. Well, there was no more, more of a downer than after we lose the Yankees to take that suitcase, put it back in your car, take it home, and watch the Yankees play Kansas City the next day where you figure you should have been, you know, so... That's kind of the feeling you had all, all the way through it. All right. Uh, let's go to the game quickly. Jerry Remy, what a job he's doing here. Um, you had Torres. They had Gidry on short rest. Yom Kippur, 3 o'clock in the afternoon in Fenway. Yaz hits the homer early. You got a 2 nothing lead through 6. I mean, you're 9 outs away. You lost this game two or three different ways. This is the first way. Dents, uh, uh, Bucky's up, 2 on, and hits the 3-run homer. Jerry, you're at second base. Your take. Go ahead. Yeah, it was one of those where, you know, we've seen it a million times at Fenway Park where, you know, if this fly ball goes up and all of a sudden it just drops in a net, you know, it's not exactly crushed, but it's a home run at Fenway. And, and, you know, that one didn't bother me. I know we gave up a lead. We gave up a lead and made it, it made it, to, to, I believe, three to two. 
And uh, but the one that got me was the the, the the center field shot by Reggie because that made it five to two. And with that bullpen with Goose out there, you know, you knew it was going to be a very difficult challenge to come back on him, you know, for three and three runs down. So that's kind of that's how I felt about it. I know people talk about Bucky Dent, Bucky Dent, you know, and Zimmer had some comments about Dent and all that stuff. But I, I on the field, I don't think we all felt that bad about it. We were disappointed. And we had gone behind in the game, but it wasn't going to beat us. All right. The eighth and ninth inning, you know, Rice hits a shot out to the outfield, gets caught. You scored two runs. You get the big base hit in the ninth, and Burleson, you know, uh, with Pinella play, a, you know, who knows what have happens if the ball gets by him, and then Yaz is up. You had a lot of at-bats in those last two innings where a pop bloop hit. You at minimum tie the game. I know Gossage is pitching, but he got in, came in in that game in the seventh inning. So, I mean, that's yeah, a lot of know. innings for a closer. Give me your thoughts, bottom eighth, bottom ninth. Jerry, go ahead. Uh, you know, talking about the bottom of the ninth, I mean, you know, you knew Coos was out of, he was out of gas. I mean, we could tell. And, uh, you know, look, if I could pull the ball against him, he was out of gas. There's no question about that because I never pulled from Gossage. I would, I would always hit ground balls to the opposite field. And then you got Rice and you got your Shrensky coming up after that. So why would you take the chance? You know, it didn't make sense. So um, we had the right guys coming up. Rice hit a long fly ball out to right field. I and mean, I'm standing at first base, and I see Yaz come up. And I said to myself, this is perfect. This is absolutely perfect, you know, because here's our guy, Mr. Red Sox, Kalia Shrensky coming up, and he's going to end this game with a home run, and we're going to walk off with a win. I honestly felt that way. And then the first, the very first pitch, he pops up to third base. And I remember rounding second base and looking at the crowd as Nettles was catching the ball. And the crowd was just stunned. They were absolutely stunned, you know. And I was actually stunned that he had swung at the first pitch, you know. And, 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 and the, look of the, the look of the ballpark was like disbelief that we had lost that game. And I'll never forget that feeling, you know, running off back to the dugout and into the clubhouse. I, I, that's, a, that's a feeling that stuck with me forever. So, you know, congratulations to them. They, they were a great, great team. They, uh, you know, it was, it was always fun to play against them. Um, it, was, it was intense. It was the way baseball should be played on both, on both sides. And I think each team didn't like each other, but each team totally respected each other, which I think is very important. Do you take solace in the fact uh, do you take solace in the fact, Jerry, that you are part of an epic game in an epic season, and although you lost, the Yankees win the whole thing, and here it is. I'm not talking about a Yankee-Kansas City game or a Yankee-Dodger game the week or two later. We're talking Yankees-Red Sox, Yom Kippur, Fenway. Do you take solace in that, or does it bug you that and I think Barroso was on third base, so even a single would have tied that game up in the ninth. Does it right. bother you? Does it bother you that you came within a little ground ball or maybe winning that game? I, it does. I mean, it still does. You know, and they, they show that game over and over again. And I, you know, I, I used to watch it, you know, for a while. And I, people always talk about it. And I say, you know what? I said, when we win the game, I said, tell me, then I'll watch it again. You know, so it's not going to happen, obviously, but. Uh, you know, it was such – I do take solace in it because, you know, it, it, it was such a good ball game, a good baseball game. And everybody played well, you know, on both sides. And it, you couldn't ask for a better day, you know, a beautiful day, fall day in Boston and uh, two great teams going at each other. The crowd was wild. And, you know, just, just um, a feeling that I can still feel today. I really can and I can remember that game like it was yesterday, where there's other games I can't even remember playing in them. So, you know, it was, it was terrific. And look, you know, we didn't like each other. I said we respected each other. I'm glad the Yankees went on and won the World Series that year. I am, because it made me feel like we were their toughest opponent. And, 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 and I, think, I really think that, you know, some of those guys respected us that way, and that makes me feel good. As a matter of fact, Goose Gossage said, um, he said that that was the most nervous he had ever been in a game. And if he says that, that means a lot to me. You know, that, that means that he totally had respect for us. And, and, and you know, uh, of course, you know, Gossage is a Hall of Famer. So when he says something like that, I know that they respected us. And that makes me feel good. Last thing, Jerry, and you made me think of something, too. You're right. Nobody played badly in the game. Torres pitched Nobody. well. Uh, Torres pitched well. Gidry worked his rear end off. 
even the fact that uh, Yaz made the last out, he hit a homer early in the game. Uh, right. The game was not won or lost on an error. I mean, that's an excellent, excellent point. I hadn't thought of that, and you're right. The other thing that I'm interested in, what did Zimmer say in the clubhouse when the game was over? Well, he took a while. He went into his office, and we all sat there, and, you know, a lot of us were in tears. You know, we really were, and, you know, we we couldn't believe what just happened, what we just, you know, went through. And, um, you know, then Zim came out, and he just walked up to everybody. You know, he walked to uh, player by player, patted him on the back, said, you guys did a hell of a job, nothing to be ashamed of, you know, and he, he was really good. He was really good about it, but it was hard. I mean, it was really hard, you know, and then, you know, he was very close with Lou Pinella, and Pinella came over to our side, and he was talking to Zim. Reggie came over to our side. He was talking to Yaz. So, you know, it was kind of a, a, a respect, respectful thing to do on their part, which I've always appreciated. Um, and, um, you know, it showed, it showed their respect for us, I think. And that, that, that's basically what we were looking for. You know, we, we, we couldn't beat them, but you know, we, we wanted their respect. We were just on another team. They were going to blow through, you know, I, I love talking about it because it's the best game, as I said, I've ever played in, even though we lost it and it doesn't ever came close to that, you know, unless I would have been on a team, unfortunately that won a world series, but that never happened to me. So I have that memory, but I'm not embarrassed by it. And I'm not yeah, and, in any shape, way, or form. And you agree with me. That is in my little podcast history here. And, you know, you're talking some great teams. 54 Indians and 77 Royals and 102 games. This Red Sox team is a top 10 team that never did win it. You do agree with that, do you not? I do agree with that, yes. I, absolutely. This is a no-brainer to me. The 78 Red Sox, they would have won the whole thing. They are definitely one of the top 10 teams in the history of the sport. Never to have won a World Series. And I do understand they didn't win 100 games. But they, were, they would have beaten Kansas City. They would have beaten the Dodgers. They were a great, great team. Now, they had a lot of great teams. And, you know, the 49 team was, was great. The 86 team was very good. The loss to the Mets with the Buckner play. They were a very, very good team, too. But this team is better. They just, they were better. I mean, that's, the Yankees were a wonderful team. The Yankees had a lot of experience. A lot of champions, a lot of blue-collar kind of players and guys like Munson and Nettles. They had Jackson who gave them all the home run scenarios. Gidry had the wonderful year. You know, they had Randolph and Pinella. I mean, it's a very, very good Yankee, excellent Yankee team. But the Red Sox could go toe-to-toe with them right there with them. It, 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 to me, if you're always going to talk about wonderful seasons and pennant races, I'm going to go to 93 Giants-Braves, and I'm going to go 78 Yankees and Red Sox. These were truly the two best teams in the sport that year, and uh, the Yankees obviously ended up proving that by winning their second consecutive championship. They beat the Royals in four games and beat the Dodgers in six games. The Red Sox were good enough to do just that, and as we heard from Freddie Lynn, they missed that opportunity by a quarter of an inch. Wow. For more episodes on baseball's greatest teams that never won a championship or to listen to the previous seasons covering the history of Thanksgiving football and the NCAA tournament, download the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Download it today and search Digging Up the Past or subscribe to our feed wherever you get your podcasts. Digging Up the Past is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Bill Zimmerman. The associate producers are Chris Tyler and Andrew Emmer. Sound design is by Matt Damro and Joey DeFazio. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for Sirius XM. Special thanks to Sirius XM's senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen, vice president of sports programming, Eric Spitz, and Mad Dog Sports Radio program director, Steve Torrey.